0: This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to The Devin Kershaw Show from Faster Skier. In this episode, Devin and I speak with journalist Alex Hutchinson. Some of you may know Hutchinson from his Sweat Science column in Outside Magazine. The column comes with a sweet little tagline stating, What does the science show? And that is what Hutchinson gets to the bottom of. He explores the science of sport. He's also the author of the 2018 book, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Bottom line, it's simply just a great read. That all said, Hutchinson penned an article recently for Outside examining altitude training and the fallacy of labeling an athlete a responder or non-responder to altitude camps. The piece caught our attention as well as one of our listeners. We speak to Hutchinson about his book, altitude training, and a long-forgotten showdown when Kershaw evidently crushed some of Hutchinson's friends in a running race. Anyhow, on to the show.
1: Hey, Jason, how's it going? We got a we got a good show coming up for the, the listeners today. So hopefully they're out for a run or a mountain bike and the snow. Uh, this smoke is cleared in in the Western states because uh, Alex Hutchinson is a fascinating person, and I think we're going to have an amazing conversation with him today.
0: Yep. I've been reading his stuff for years in, in outside. He's also one of these guys, I know this is sort of like totally unhip, but I feel like the most useful social media comes over Twitter. And so he's like one of these people that, and what I mean by useful social media, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm learning something. I'm not just learning what someone did for their workout today, but I'm actually learning uh that's something that might inform myself to become a better person or more educated and he offers up some awesome stuff so whenever i see a a twitter post from alex i'm like which is i think he's like sweat science on twitter i'm always stoked we ended up getting a question from a listener having to do with altitude training and what some swedish athletes have done in the past and we're not going to get into that today i think we're going to spend more time uh you know talking to Alex just about some his book and and some articles but altitude certainly is going to be on people's minds as we're you know a little more than a year out from the Beijing games which will the venue will be about 1800 meters which is high No,
1: for sure. And I think that is what makes this conversation with Alex so, so exciting, because altitude can be controversial. And there's also a lot of misinformation, right? Like you read one story about one athlete doing something before one championship, but you have to also look into where all these championships uh, occur, where they occur, and uh, how the athletes prepared and who actually did what, where. And the reality is with cross-country skiing, the last time we've had a high altitude championship was in 2002. Yes, Sochi was high. It was just over 1,500 meters, but that—that that, that's not right at the limit of 1,800 meters. And the only time that that's happened in the last 20 years was in Salt Lake City or Soldier Hollow more specifically in 2002. So, but there was no pandemic at that point. <laughs> so teams were able to prepare as they saw fit for that championship. And now when you look at the calendar, like we talked about last, last episode, I mean, times are ticking and the Olympics are coming soon, like really soon. And with this pandemic limiting travel and that sort of thing, it it can affect preparation. So it'll be interesting to hear um, the perspectives from Alex uh, on that. And and a whole bunch of a plethora of other interesting topics.
0: Okay, let's get them on the line. Just to kind of set some context here as, devin and i kind of banter back and forth all the time uh we were talking about the beijing games that are coming up and most often the year before an olympic games um, i'm sure this is the same in lots of different sports but uh, cross-country skiers are heading to altitude for training camps just to start ramping up for an event a big event that might be a year away and we were discussing textually what is happening this year with travel bans and limitations of you know, cross-border travel in Europe, um, what, li- what limitations there might be for North American skiers, what type of access to altitude camps we would get. And lo and behold, we got a question from a listener who was like, hey, here's what I'm thinking. And hey, by the way, have you read uh, Alex Hutchinson's latest piece in outside, which I had already seen it. I hadn't read it yet, but here we (laughs) go. So that's how we're, we, that is how we are coming to you.
2: Cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, I mean, altitude is something, yeah, we can get into this on the, on the podcast, but yeah, it's, I've written about it a lot. It's super controversial. Like people have strong feelings about it. People who really believe in it get really annoyed when you question it. Uh, people who don't believe it get really annoyed when you write about it as if it it's uh, as, as if it's definitely true. So yeah, there's lots to, d- to discuss about the difference between theory and practice and and, and whether maybe it's, if, even if it works, whether it's as important as people think and whether people who can't get to altitude right now should really be stressing out, which I don't think they should.
0: Alex, can you tell us uh, a little bit about your, your, your academic background, uh, your passion for endurance sports? And I'm sure some listeners are going to know you from Outside uh, Magazine uh, and and Sweat Science. But give us a, a little bit of a brief intro of who you are.
2: Sure. I mean, I guess to start with the present day, I'm a I'm a, a journalist, and I would describe my niche as a, a not just a science journalist and not just a sports science journalist, but an endurance sports science journalist. So I've I've made the niche narrow enough that I can be you know almost the only person there. Um, and my background to get there is a little bit, so I come from the running world. I was a, a middle distance runner uh, in Canada f- uh, for, uh, you know, until my 30s. And uh, I have a scientific training, but a scientific training that has nothing to do with with physiology or with sports. I, I started out in physics uh, and uh, was a physicist until my late 20s and then found that sort of hard and not that exciting, so I went back to school and, and studied journalism and so, I guess since about 2000, I think I finished journalism school, and I did a master's in journalism. Finished that in 2005, and have been freelance ever since. Or, or I started a newspaper, daily newspaper, and then after a year and a half of that, I've been freelance ever since, and i have sort of drifted into writing more in a more and more specialized way about the the science of sports, the science of health, and specifically the science of endurance sports. Uh, I've for a while I was with Runner's World. Uh, I've written for quite a few different publications but my main gig these days is with Outside Magazine where I write a, an online column called Sweat Science. Um, when it come that these days it comes out 5 times a month and it's basically what it amounts to is I'm looking at peer-reviewed research in this realm of stuff that would be of interest to outside readers and specifically to sort of endurance or an outdoors oriented people. So I, I don't and you know not to ramble on too long about this but I, I would say the way i tend to approach these topics is not so much here's an interesting question that some that everyone has let's go see what the science says because the truth is when when you ask really specific questions about how to train or what to do and then you go and ask the science it turns out that the science never seldom answers that exact question because science is very limited in the questions it can answer so i kind of do it the other way around i start with by watching the scientific literature and figuring out figure out what questions you know what studies have just come out in the last week or the last month and then are th- is this relevant to endurance athletes in some way and, if, and then I write about it so so most of my studies tend to be here's a study that came out here's the context here's why we shouldn't maybe take it at face value or why we should and uh, and yeah so that's that's kind of the, the, the way I make my living these days
0: okay great and um, as a side note uh, you are I, it, it's I have two Canadians on here um, did you ever follow cross country skiing, Nordic skiing um, during the Canadian heyday? Devin Kershaw, Becky Scott, others. The the guy from Quebec, <laughs> the Prince. <laughs> well,
2: uh, you know, in Canada, we're starved enough for for athletic success that a- anybody in any sport that is doing well. You know whether it's uh, synchronized trampolining or or uh, you know that headfirst form of uh, uh, skeleton uh, we follow. But I actually have a pretty good story about my uh, the first time I heard the, the the name Devin Kershaw. This is back, God, I think it was maybe 2007 or so, so almost 15 years ago. Uh, you know, I was training in Toronto at the time, and and uh, a couple of the guys I trained with came back from a from the, the Tom Longboat 10K, and they'd gotten smoked by some guy they'd never heard of. And you know you get to a certain level in a sport and you don't you don't win all the time but you kind of figure you know the name of everybody who can beat you. And these, you know, we checked the results and we're like, what the hell guys, who who, who did you lose to? Who is this guy? Uh, and they're like, oh, I, I don't know, but he took off right from the start. He went through 5k in like 15 minutes and just never came back. So we did a little Googling and discovered that this, this, this guy, Devin Kershaw was a, a skier. And then the mockery really intensified. It's like, come on guys, you're, you're embarrassing us. You're letting down the sport, losing to this skier. Then we Googled a little more, and it's like, oh wait, he went to the Olympics. Uh, oh wait, he was top, you know, top six at Worlds. And so, from that moment on, I, I was uh, a much bigger fan of following Devin's uh, performances because, uh, you know, I could watch the Vancouver Olympics and say, hey, that's the guy who smoked my friends at, at the Tom <laughs> Longboat 10K in, in, in Toronto. So yeah, we de- I definitely followed, but it was it's uh, it, and it was definitely became more fun when when people like uh, Devin and, and and Becky Scott and Alex Harvey and those guys uh, started really placing well. Devin,
0: you ran cross-country, at least in high school, right?
1: Yeah, no, running is a huge passion of mine, and it was definitely... I had a really hard time actually deciding whether or not to run or... Or to cross country ski. So in high school, I grew up in Ontario, Sudbury, Ontario. For those of you that know where that is, I'm sorry, Um, but (laughs) the trees are growing back. At least that's what they say. I don't know. They look just as small as (laughs) when I was growing up. But anyways, uh, no. So I ran. I ran competitively uh, growing up as well. And I actually just kind of transferred from sport to sport. I mean, it was a little bit of a different time. So I trained a lot with running. And and Alex might know, like the track club up there, Track North. uh, Dick Moss is dick moss is the coach there 800 meter runner for for those that are middle distance runners he was a great middle distance runner ran uh, at uh, the university of wisconsin back in the days and so he was my track coach and and yeah so cross-country running and track and field was was everything to me during those months and then i would just snap my fingers and change and and start cross-country skiing all winter and much to my mother's chagrin uh, after doing a bunch of school visits down in the u.s and ncaa and everything i'm like uh, i think i'm gonna pick skiing i <laughs> think they- my mom I think my mom was pretty disappointed after you like checked out schools um uh yeah that was tough my mom's a university where was a university professor uh in parts of her career as well so so some of the academic schools that we we checked out down in the states I mean like if you go if you go see Cornell and stuff and then you say no and your mom's a university professor. I think that was pretty hard for us. <laughs> So uh, instead, I picked Nordic skiing uh, and then put my education on hold till, till now. So uh, yeah, but um, no, so running has always been something that I've been really passionate about. I love it.
2: Yeah. And I, and I have to say that after, after that, I, I, I sort of became a little more hip to that idea. And I, I do notice, especially in Scandinavia, you, you, you find people Coming out of the woodwork and and running truly world class times based on cross country ski training. So I I I don't mean to disrespect the uh, the natural running ability of skiers, but it's uh it's a, there's a turf thing, right? Like no, you, no, no. you figure, hey, no, they no. can be good, but they can't
1: beat us. Oh, for sure, totally. <laughs> oh, and Alex, you you have no idea, like here in Norway, because cross country skiing is is the is the yeah, it's the hockey of Canada, right? The cross country skiing is the biggest sport here. It's a national sport here in Norway and, and runners or like cross country skiers run so slow, like, and so poorly technically. And they have water belts, which is essentially like a giant fanny pack filled with a liter of sport drink. And they're running like six, seven minute kilometers through the woods. And then there's like the braggadocious, like, yeah, we did like a five hour run or a six hour run. And yeah, we did. And they, and they do, but at, you know six minute kilometers or, or if you're running 10k an hour i mean like a three hour run is 30 kilometers which uh which someone that is training for the marathon for example and someone that's training to even go a uh, fairly respectable time let's say for for or quite respectable time for like a for a um uh in norwegian motionist but uh, like just a kind of someone that likes to do uh man i can my english is that bad now but anyway like marathons, marathons and 10 Ks, that sort of thing. So if you're running like two forty-five or or, or two thirty in the marathon, that's actually fairly good for a master athlete. But, um, if you think about how fast they could rip off a 30 K, I mean, they're doing it a lot faster than, than three hours. So, and then the technique is hilarious. And then I don't know if you saw this, Alex, but the, at the impossible games or the what is usually Bishlet games, but because of Corona, the Corona situation, they had to adjust things. But, um, Teresa Yohag, who's a cross country skier, ran a pretty amazing time to do totally by yourself. not not like international like not breaking in to make the olympics kind of thing but if you're running 31 mid by yourself in racing flats and doing it with the world's worst running technique <laughs> <it's-> <laughs> It's, uh, it's, 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 there's been a lot of debates here too. So it's, uh, that's, we, we take that, we take that on the chin, no problem. We do run like, we do run like garbage. Our, our biomechanics are off.
2: well, it's, it's all the more motivation for, for the, the quote unquote pure runners. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, Alex, for those who love to kind of read and immerse themselves in endurance, you know, sort of training books or just books speaking to, Human physiology. You wrote a book uh, in 2018, I believe, titled "Endure Mind, Body, and the Curio- Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance." And I tried to kind of come up with a summation of the book. And then, as I, you know, you go online and sniff around, there was a great couple sentences from the Kirkus review that I am going to poach and give them credit for. But I'm going to read that, and then we're going to get into your book a little bit and what you learned. But What they say is this, Hutchinson reinforces the uncertainty of current controversies in modern exercise science without forcing his readers to pick a side. Specifically, he investigates what is at the heart of the limits of man's endurance. Is it the body's mechanistic breaking point or the brain's upper threshold of belief? I mean, I don't know how you feel about those sentences, but I felt like, at least from my perspective, it it really nailed it. One last thing that I wanted to mention of all the different anecdotes you give in the book, I thought the most profound one was right up front, where it was your experience, um, I believe, running the 1500. Um, I forget, but it was on this really steep indoor track. And you broke a PR and then subsequently broke several more PRs after that. And it, it just was astounding to me the sort of times you were cutting off. I'm curious, thinking about your younger self then and then now. But back then, what were you attributing those uh, PRs to?
2: Yeah, that's it's it's always hard to 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 revisit your state of mind. But the, the, you know, this is the, the story you're talking about is when I was about twenty years old. And I didn't have a, a particular background in, in sports science, but I was interested in it. And I'd read a lot of books, particularly stuff like Tim Noakes's Lore of Running, which was the the, the Bible at the time for, for runners, or for scientifically inclined runners. And I think my understanding of, of limits was very mechanistic. It was, uh, you know, you, you have your VO2 max, you have your running economy, you have your lactate threshold. Um, and you know various other factors you're fueling and, and, and so on and these dictate your limits and so, to, you know, to me, you you ran a race, and that reflected the nature of your 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 current fitness at that time. And the story you're talking about, that just to for, for listeners who who, but you know, through some oversight, haven't yet read the book. Um, it, basically, w- w- what happened is is the timekeeper at this race was he must have missed the start or ha- or he messed something up on the timing and was giving me the wrong splits, so that I had the impression I was running ex- way faster than I was, and yet feeling good, and I and this sort of messed with my head so much that I was like, holy crap, I'm coming through you know 600 meters in uh, 127 which is you know way way faster than I thought I was capable of and yet I feel great and so I ended up just sort of like this is the day of my life don't waste it and I and I and so I really picked it up and, and actually did end up running fast so it was this sort of disconnect between what my mind what my body was doing and what my mind thought it was doing. And when, you know, your question is like, what did I, and so I had a, I had a nine second personal best in the 1500 at that point, And then I followed that up with another, uh, I guess another eight seconds over the next two races. What did I attribute it to at the time? I, I'm not really sure. And, and what stands out to me when I look back is that there was a big kind of. Uh, conflict between what I believed, which was that my races reflected what my body was capable of, and what I was experiencing, which was that all of a sudden my body was seemingly becoming capable of of way, way more. So, you know, I, I, probably at the time I I, I would have been said, I guess I was kind of choking a little bit in my previous races. I wasn't getting the most out of myself, or I was too, I wasn't for, for some reason, but I didn't really understand it. And in a sense, that that experience of, because of, at the, at the background is I had been stuck at the same level for th- almost four years, running the same times over and over again. Then all of a sudden, thanks to this misunderstanding, I had a breakthrough. So that weird sensation of oh wait it's all physical it's all my this is what my legs are capable of to wait all of a sudden i'm capable of so much more is what planted the seed for the book you know to start working on the book maybe 10 15 years later and to or, or let's see am i doing my math right yeah 15 years later and publish it almost you know 25 years later is that i still couldn't understand it i didn't have a good explanation and, and I, d- I didn't really know how to think about limits when all of a sudden my limits seemed to be changing from week to week
0: it's, I, I, and then you do a really great job of blending some, you know, pretty heavy science um, with grounded anecdotes and providing and reducing it to some good positive takeaways or understandable takeaways for people. You know, I'm kind of curious for you personally, and you, you, I know you still stay fit. What were the takeaways for you personally about? As you age, I think uh, I don't know. I'm guessing like you're in your early 40s or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I'm 44. Okay, so as you age, you know how to be the best athlete that you can be. Yeah,
2: that's a, It's in, so. Th- I mean, there, there's there are a couple of aspects to that question that are that are interesting. One, one you know, one is what what is the use of all this science that I waded through in the book? Like, what what are the takeaways? And the, and and I would sort of answer that separately from. How, you know how do I uh, face the, the you know the prospect of aging and what, what do I want to do what you know what I, what am I looking for when I head out I do run let's let's say six days a week if not seven uh, what you know what am I trying to get out of myself in these runs and what and and what what inspires me to push myself and I have to say right now and for the last let's say I don't know four or five years. I train, but I'm not too concerned about my races right now, and, that, and a lot of that is because I have kids that are who are four and six years old. <laughs> oh um, yeah,
1: <laughs> and yeah, exactly. You
2: know, uh, there's a lot. I'm sure there's a lot of nodding heads out there. Uh, and don't get me wrong, there are people who go and win yeah. the Olympics when they have four and six year old kids. But um, my my focus has shifted a little bit, and I, I never want, at least not at this stage in my life, I don't want you know the the desire to set an age graded PB to to Become a an obligation or a chore. I've always felt that, um, I, you know, the, the pushing myself is, is a privilege, not some sort of duty that I'm I'm not worthy if I'm not getting everything out of myself. So I go out and I work out. I I, I do usually two workouts a week: a tempo workout and a and a interval workout. And I run the rest of the days. And you know, I I enjoy that and I enjoy pushing myself. And I usually do a couple races a year. Although this year has been a little bit different, but. The fact is, I'm not. I'm. I, you know, I, I'm not trying to squeeze every last drop out of myself right now, and that's that makes it interesting because obviously, I just wrote this book, or at least two years ago, I wrote this book about how to squeeze every last drop out of yourself, and so, uh, you, you know, the truth is. In terms of thinking about things like, like mindset, which is something I talk about a lot about in the book, the idea of you know motivational self talk, and and some of the getting into some of the science behind sports psychology, which is something that I didn't really give a lot of attention to when I was competing most seriously. Um, you know, I'm not in a space in my life right now where I'm like, yeah, I want to spend an hour a day doing you know visualization and working on on motivational self talk. So I haven't tried that so much but what i what i would say and and so i think if if i was in a different stage of my life if i was trying and then maybe i will be in five years maybe i'll be going for like trying to see how fast i can run at 50 or whatever and then there's certain things that i i would take away from from that research about uh the importance of your internal monologue the importance of what's going through your head and 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 what you tell yourself in the middle of a race but more generally i think that the, the really simple thing to take away is just this understanding that when you're pushing to your limits, this isn't it's not a mathematical formula. It's not like you know i'm I'm two thirds of the way through a race, and someone's starting to pull away from me. I feel like I can't go with him, Therefore, that means my lactate threshold must be wrong or like i'm I'm incapable of going with that person. So I think it's a really powerful insight to understand not that it not that we all have the freedom to just go as fast as we want but that we are making decisions when we get gapped it is a decision and sometimes it is the right decision because if you decide to stick with that person you may maybe you are going to blow up 2k later or whatever but to understand that limits aren't immutable that they're not unchangeable and that it's you know some days you can push harder than others and so you have to decide it's in any good race you make a decision right that you're it's like i don't think i can sustain this pace to the finish but i'm gonna try it anyway and and some days it turns out you can so anyway that's a rambling answer to, to say that i haven't like radically changed my life thanks to these insights but i don't think that's necessarily the 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 point or the goal it's it's more just like understanding what is it, what does it mean to be to feel like i'm at my limits partway through a race
0: no, I love I love how you just surmise that like making a decision that makes me feel better actually. <laughs> so like uh, maybe maybe and I we all can... make the wrong
2: decisions right like frequently but but it's it's better that than to <laughs> exactly
0: maybe I was just about to say yeah. maybe I can make some better choices in the future a non total non sequitur here but I want to ask this before I, it leaves my brain. Malcolm Gladwell, obviously, you know, another person who's written a lot about running performance, amongst lots of other things. He wrote the preface to your, to your book. I, I'm curious, he's a little bit older than you. Back in his prime, you're both in your prime going head to head. Who, who takes it? Both of you making really good decisions.
1: Well, <laughs> oh, that's an easy one.
2: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give a, a, a semi-diplomatic answer. Malcolm's prime was actually as a teenager. He he got had some injuries when he went to university, and never he never really ran seriously when he was uh, you know a full-grown adult. He his probably his greatest race is that he beat the the later the guy who later held the Canadian national record for fifteen hundred. He beat him to one the the grade nine age category ontario 1500 meter championships and he did that in i think 1979 or 1978 my claim to fame, in some ways my greatest race was winning the exact same race about 15 years later but i i can say that malcolm was five seconds faster than me when he did it so if we both raced at our teen best he would smoke me however if we raced at our adult prime when malcolm was a, a world successful journalist but not training hard and i was trading hard <laughs> I, I i would have beaten him so so we each get to take one of these
0: virtual races okay and how would that have stacked up against kershaw oh well well i
1: never i well i never won the 1500 at offsa or or actually never won a single offsa running gold medal but i had a lot of medals but uh <laughs> yeah nate brennan if you guys know that name uh canadian 1500 meter runner and and good and cross country and good and everything you ran for the university of Michigan. Yeah. He's the same age as me and
2: sub four I, miler in high school. Yeah.
1: Sub four, sub four minute miler in high school. And, uh, he was a friend of mine and we competed against each other and, and, uh, him and then Dylan, Dylan Weeks, if you guys know who that is, he went to the Olympics for, for Canada as well in the marathon. Uh, so we were all, all three of us, uh, the similar, same age, uh, Dylan's a year younger, but, um, I tried every which way, to beat Nate Brennan on the track and in cross country and I just he, I could never drop him and he would always either smoke me in like in the 1500 on the track it was I just wasn't fast at 1500 really but in the 3000 or especially in cross country I remember when I was in grade 12 and and the Ontario Championships for cross country running was was in Etobicoke and I drove the whole race and we dropped the field by yeah quite a bit and yet Nate was on my shoulder the whole way, and I'm like, "There's just nothing I can do." Like I was just cross country ski drilling it, and then yeah, right around, right at the corner when we get to the to the shoot, there he just pulled out and and blew the doors off me. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's cross country running was something that I was I was a better cross country runner maybe than than track, but at the same time, like yeah, I don't know. It's hard. I'm I'm 1500. I didn't race a whole lot of 1500 meters. Uh, and I think maybe my best at officer for fifteen hundred would have been like maybe fifth or sixth. So that's 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 far beyond winning. I, I never was there to win.
2: Well. Th- to be fair, Nate was, just for context for people, Nate Brand is one of the sort of handful of greatest runners in Canadian yeah. history. So, uh, losing to him in cross country. So, we'll say I get to uh, Malcolm takes the teen title, I take the
0: middle distance title, and, and Devin <laughs> sure. have the cross country <laughs> Yo, title. Spread the wealth. Okay. So, <laughs> y- you know, you talk a lot uh, about a lot of different legal experimentation right like athletes are are always thinking about and their coaches are always thinking about like what can we do slightly differently to get a a different stimulus to become you know a quarter percent faster and you talk a lot about a different variables and one of the things we're going to take a deep dive into is, is altitude again i sort of set that up at the, at the beginning where uh, the Beijing Games, at least for cross-country, it will be considered, although within the fist limits, it, it, it'll be right below it, it'll be at altitude, relatively, uh, for people who live in, say, Europe, uh, maybe not in the Rockies, but it'll be high. And you wrote a piece in Outside. I. I don't have my date popping up but recently within the last like say week and a half two weeks um why altitude training helps some but not others and the subtitle is a new analysis cast out on the idea that people are born as quote responders or quote non-responders for training in thin air um and it's a great piece we got a letter from a listener who referenced it as i mentioned before we go into it a bit i'm just curious how would you render it down uh, or render it down to a few uh, minute comment here okay so
2: the context for this article is that there's been a be- belief for a long time that some people are some people benefit from altitude and others don't and and this you know the one of the things i mentioned in the article is i can remember I, so many times I've seen, you know, like altitude tents for sale on running message boards and stuff, and the comment is along the lines, you know, I got this because I thought it would give me an edge. Turns out I'm not a responder to altitude, so I'm I'm ditching the altitude tent. And you know, and this has become at least certainly when I was competing seriously, this was just sort of something that everyone accepted. You have to figure out whether you're an altitude responder. So what this particular study did was it just analyzed the results uh, from a whole bunch of athletes from the Finnish national team from across different sports like running and cross-country skiing and others uh, from various national team altitude camps that they'd done over, I think it was a, I can't remember if it was a nine-year period or something like that. And they just, you know, they did, they looked at things like, uh, you know, did they manage to increase their hemoglobin count, you know, their red cell count, uh, which is what you want to do when you go to altitude training. And some people did and some people didn't. So then you look at like, well when people did more than one training camp, were the same people, it was always the same people who got better and the same people who didn't or who got worse. And the, the, the sort of the punchline of this particular study is no, it wasn't. Uh, it, there was basically no way of predicting, just because you got better once doesn't mean you would get better the next time. So there's a lot of different ways of interpreting this in the context of broader controversies of uh, is altitude training as wonderful as some people say or as useless as other people say? Um, because if you're a responder is that just fluke like because you went you you went to this lovely mountain with your buddies and you did nothing but train all day and eat lovely mountain food and and you know not get away from the distractions of regular life and so you would have gotten better even if the the training camp was you know 10 meters below sea level in the dead sea um or is there something magical about altitude and the people who don't respond don't respond because they did something stupid because they, you know, they weren't eating right, so they didn't have enough iron in their diet, or they didn't take iron supplements, or they overtrained. They didn't, they didn't, you know, respect the altitude when they arrived, and they just immediately hopped off the plane and went out and started hammering and dug themselves a hole that they weren't able to recover from. And so, there's all these different ways of interpreting why some people really benefit from altitude and why others don't. Um, and so, the takeaway from this study is it's not it's it's not w- wired into your genes uh it's not like some people always respond and some people don't instead it comes down to how well you execute it did, did are you were you healthy did you execute your training right did you get the balance between uh uh you know training and recovery right and maybe did you just take advantage of a training of, training camp effect of just, you know, getting away from the, the cares of everyday life and hammering? So, uh, and the answers to all those questions are, it's not clear, but there's, there's some pretty strong opinions yeah. out there.
1: No, oh, and it is so interesting, Alex, with that, because this has just been a debate, like throughout, like the Canadian cross-country ski team in, in my career, altitude training was such a big part of our, of our preparations. It really was. And and we've experimented with, uh, we experimented with a lot of different altitude a lot of different altitude training. Um, And this debate has come up often because like you said, when you're at a training camp, (laughs) you have no distractions. You're there, you're you're hopefully in a nice place and you're just there to train. And then we started getting cute in the Canadian cross country ski team where we we would do, um, I don't know you for sure. This is so published everywhere. You know, team sky has been doing that in, um, in Tenerife and stuff, but uh, the yo-yo training yo-yo altitude training so you sleep some nights up high and then you sleep some nights down low and then you do these cycles and then you plan your training all around it and all this sorts of stuff i mean we've done training camps in hawaii we did training the cross-country skiers we did training camps in maui where we would sleep where we would sleep at sea level and use Haleakala, which is a real beast of a hill on roller skis in plus 30. And and we would sleep, uh, not right in the crater, but uh, we actually were sleeping like at... I think it was 23 or 2400 meters up on Haleakala and then doing this yo-yo protocol. And we've done that a lot. And then we tried to do it in Europe as well. And then because the science showed, or at least like the studies that we were doing or like the, the results were showing that it gives an effect. But but I would always argue it's like in a perfect world, yes, but how much energy are we using as a team to move back and forth. And then in Europe on a race season, trying to prepare for a championship, you're doing this, like you're exposed to many different hotels, different people cleaning your rooms. You're on that knife edge. It's easier to get sick than, than trying to, you're not controlling your environment really. So you're trying to get that, 0.3% of this altitude protocol, uh, yo-yo training, and, and you're not taking into consideration all the other factors. Uh, so this, it just gets super, super interesting. Right. And then with the altitude non-responder responder responder stuff, I mean, this is, this was a debate throughout so many hours of my training in the, especially with Alex and everybody and the guys, but, but, um, it was really interesting because some athletes would just go to altitude every fall and, you know, they were in good shape, go to a a three-week altitude camp. And we did a longer altitude protocol. We don't have to get all into the details. People that are interested can email me and ask what we did. But um, for example, to take a fall altitude camp uh, in Park City or Mammoth Lakes in in California, which is 2,600 meters. And and in Park City, we'd be living at Deer Valley, which is about 2,400, 2,500 meters. Um, And guys would come in there, in pretty good shape, do a three-week altitude camp, come back, be garbage, race horrendously bad for months, maybe not even have a good race for the season. And yet the next year they would be back on the plane down there and do the exact same thing again and again. And it was just bonkos to me that coaches would do that. But at the same time, we started to try and really understand if we were altitude responders or not. So of course we did the, uh, the blood tests before and after iron supplements for those that, that needed it or showed with the blood tests that it would be important to take it. So like just oral supplements, uh, iron supplements. But then also it became clear that like hemoglobin mass, this is what w- our team landed on. was like your hemoglobin mass was was really the ticket of whether or not um, – an altitude camp was working or not because you can be you can be fooled by the the hemoglobin number the hematocrit number when you come back i mean when you come back if, if my let's say i don't know that let's say my i come back from an altitude camp and my hemoglobin is 17.0 grams per deciliter which is right on the fifth limit like that is you can't if i'm at 17.1 i can't i'm out i can't race um so that's great and all, but I could also get that by training in a sauna and not drinking. <laughs> so, so, so did you, for like one workout, not even for the long distance of of what I was doing, right? Not even for a three week altitude camp. So hemoglobin mass, we landed on that. But then of course, some athletes were not, were not able, maybe on the development team, for example, that lived in, in uh, different areas of Canada that weren't, weren't able to do hemoglobin mass testing. And it just becomes this convoluted mess. And I, I find it so fascinating. And I think it's so interesting, that point that you made, not just in your article, but you just made now as well. It's it, it, to, to compete at the highest level. If you're, if you're starting to mess around with altitude or starting to think that you can use altitude to be good, that you can't forget that unless you're at a very extremely high level, altitude will not be a magic bullet. Because like you just mentioned, there are so many variables at the altitude camp itself there's a lot of stress on your body period. (laughs) And if you train exactly like you train at home in Toronto, but you're up in mammoth lakes, you are going to dig yourself into a hole and that's not mental. It's just not going to work. You're going to explode. (laughs) And then those residual fatigue is going to carry through into your season. And, and it's going to be so hard to try and unpack what you did or what you didn't do. So I, I I do find the whole thing with altitude fascinating actually. And, and where Jason and I kind of landed on this topic of altitude is in cross country skiing, the legal limit, the fist legal limit is 1800 meters. And, you can't have fist race at world cups or the Olympics over 1800 meters. And the last time we had a, a championship at the limit at the legal limit for fist was 2002 in Salt Lake city. Um, the races were held in soldier hollow just outside of park city and they were right up at the 1800 meter limit. And now Beijing as well is, is going to be up at that 1800 meter limit. And it's so fascinating for me because the, the Norwegian team, for example, have been, Well, they've been leaders in altitude training, at least in cross country skiing, no question. Uh, But they have a really distinct protocol. And now this year, it's all been thrown away, they haven't been able to, to do it, because they haven't been able to travel. And yet the Russian team, and yeah, we know we could go all into like maybe it's not the altitude with the Russian team. At least that, at this point, it's pretty clear it's not just the altitude. But yeah, uh, but but regardless, they they have access and they're doing normal altitude uh, altitude training in the U.S. as well. I mean, cross country ski team is based, or like they have uh, USSA is based at a Park City, which is at altitude, so they they can train there. And I, it's just a curious, you know, we Jason, and I had a little discussion. It's interesting with the Norwegian team. It'll be interesting with the distance skiers when they can't do that whatsoever and maybe they can't get up to altitude for a year and a half or wh- whatsoever and then you have some young athletes that just have never done altitude training and never no one has competed at 1800 meters if you're a norwegian kid that's 22 um you've never even done a race at 1800 meters you have no idea what that's like and, and altitude tents are actually banned here in norway you can't you can't use simulated altitude it's um yeah so it's illegal uh, well it is illegal but it's um not wada illegal but it's an ethical breach that um that the uh sports federation in not just cross-country skiing but the norwegian sport federation has has banned so um to sum that up it, it is super interesting i'm just so fascinated with it so i was just wanted to hear what your what your thoughts were about like hemoglobin mass testing and have you heard much about about this yo-yo training i mean chris Froome was doing that nibbly as well even though he was not on the same team um but I was noticing that, and we've been doing that a lot in the past, and it's been fast it's interesting.
2: Interesting. So there's a bunch of interesting things you said there. Let me let me respond to a couple of them. Um, one is just going back to the non-responder thing and and the idea of whether it works at all. So I I, I was at a conference in in uh, Holland with a couple of altitude training experts last fall, just actually just before things shut down. And one of the speakers was a guy, a very unpopular guy in the endurance sports world, because his talk was why altitude training doesn't work. And there were two important things that he said, which I think are relevant. One is the first thing he said in his talk is, look, in theory, altitude training works. We know that if you go to altitude, you will increase your red cell count. And we also know that if you increase your red cell count, you will uh, improve your endurance performance. So it's not that it doesn't work in theory. No one no one disbelieves that it works in theory. The question is whether it's when the rubber hit the, hits the road is whether it's going to work in practice. And so he made the argument that, look, we've got lots of data on how much your hemoglobin will increase when you go to to altitude and he cited some numbers and then he said we also have data from old blood doping studies back in the 70s and 80s that tell you how much your performance will improve for a given amount of increase in red blood cells and the numbers to make it work you have to get everything perfect you have to get like the maximum benefit from altitude training at, in order to get the, the minimum in, in, in increase in performance that we can measure so it works if everything's perfect. The question is, will everything be perfect, like like Devin was saying? And the other point he's made related to that is, you know, we talk about responders and non-responders. That's actually a misnomer, because if you look at, so you look at the original live high, train, low study from 97 that had, I can't remember, it was like 17 out of 35 subjects or something were responders. Well, the other ones, the like the, the other 18 or whatever, yeah. we call them non-responders. Non-responders doesn't mean that their performance didn't change. For most of them, they got worse. So it's not like, I'm going to flip a coin here and maybe I'm going to get better and maybe I won't. It's, I'm going to flip a coin here and maybe I'm going to get better or maybe I'm going to get worse. And that's a different... Uh, you know set of things it's not like you know people pop their multivitamins thinking well maybe it'll help and maybe you know if not i'll just pee it out it's like you're taking this pill that maybe it's going to help or maybe it's going to make you slower and you think you want to think about that those odds differently especially like devin said if you're not if you don't have like three physiologists traveling with you and you know watching your every breath it's a lot harder to get that stuff right if you're not taking the mass and you and you you are absolutely right devin like you have to measure hemoglobin mass Uh otherwise you're just you're subject to those fluctuations in your plasma volume which which change
1: 100 percent, exactly and that is what i find so fascinating about it is altitude has become this this yeah like this this silver bullet that people don't really understand with what it's doing and then just some of the wacky stuff that happens at altitude camps that that don't have those quote-unquote controls or and those controls are silly anyways because you're awake for you know let's say 12 to 14 hours a day. And there's so many choices you're making during that that time. And if you think of training, especially in endurance training, cross-country skiing or cycling, more specifically compared to running, uh, just because you're out there, you're outside in the elements longer. I mean, a a runner that's preparing for – I mean, because it was actually awesome when we were in Mammoth a lot of the time, like back in Ryan Hall's uh, peak – uh, their training group where was up in Mary lakes at 3000 meters doing tempo runs up there. It was just in fascinating to see these guys. Um, yeah. Do their training at altitude it was kind of against what we'd been learned too. I mean, they were doing tempo runs at 3000 meters and, and we were definitely the physiologists that work with us and the people around us. It was like, no, you train level one at altitude. Um, and then, you have to go if you're going to do intensity, even level three, which is like a tempo run for for those that are interested in running. That all has to be done under the legal limit for fists. So because or else it's it's not where you get too tired and you ha- carry that fatigue through. And if you're trying to train five six hours as well the next day, like it just you, you it's a nail in the coffin. Not just nail in the coffin; it's nail through the forehead, and that's the ball game. So so it, it but it is really really interesting. All all that with um with altitude and the variables i think are something that that become overlooked like so overlooked there are so many variables that need to be done right and it's kind of one of those things there's an adage in cross-country skiing that that you know like it's not really the intensity workouts that are going to destroy your season it's it's all that level one training you do so if you're training all this level one training if you train a thousand hours a year and you think that in the intensities, like how many tempo or level three sessions and level four sessions and races, maybe that accounts for 150 hours of your training, maybe 200, not even because there's breaks in that. So let's say 100, 150 hours of your training. I mean, if you're training all that 850 other hours too fast. <laughs> you're 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 wrecked and then everyone looks like you know what that interval workout i went a little too fast my lactate was supposed to be six and it was measured at nine and that was the that was the session that destroyed my season (laughs) it's like no i don't think so and so just the reason why i bring that up is with an altitude camp you know you you can get so uptight with like all the testing uh lactate testing as well of course during level one and and all that sort of stuff and but then maybe you're not sleeping well you're eating bad and every time you go up for that four hour run you're you're at the high end of your level one or you're not taking in consideration um uh, the suppression of heart rate once you start getting tired and you think that you're all fine and good, but it's really just the, the physiology that's fooling you. And, and then, yeah, in the end, you, you're, you come back and you made all these mistakes and, and it costs you a season or, or half a season cause you're in a body bag. So it's, it's a fascinating, uh, topic. I I'm, I'm fascinated by altitude training, but it is going to be interesting. What's going to happen when, when Beijing comes to town, because these teams are not going to be used to going into championships uh, quote unquote unprepared or not prepared in the way that they they're experienced with
2: well that is that is one x factor that I think is worth just just pulling out a little bit there, there's I mean there's a huge debate about altitude training for competition at sea level but when you're competing at 1800 meters that I would say that, that raises the stakes a little bit. To me, that that tilts the, the balance in favor of like, oh, actually, altitude training is getting more important. Like, I'd I'd be more I willing agree. to take some risks because then it's not just like, am I getting an edge? It's am I ready for the specific competition totally. conditions? You
1: and I are exactly on the same page, and and that's uh, I totally agree. And that's that's where we got some pushback from from some from some not pushback, sorry, but some interesting comments from readers or listeners sorry uh, about that and it's like you have to understand you have to compete at 1800 meters and you have to understand what it's like it's not a matter of just like saying like well i'm just going to start the race a little easier like what does that mean if you have no experience with that what is a little easier (laughs) you know if you've never done a hard workout at 1800 meters before in your whole life and you're from oslo norway yeah yeah like you have no concept of what that is let alone put the science aside just like in execution,
2: I, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit. I, I remember, uh, I've, I have friends in Calgary uh, who I used to visit sometimes, and and uh, you know, we would do a race, uh, you know, a road race if there was one going on. And uh, you know, Calgary is I don't know, like what 500 meters thousand, above sea level, thousand, thousand,
1: thousand meters, thousand meters, thousand. like less
2: than I'm pretty sure it's less than a thousand meters, just like nothing, and uh but every year i'd go and or not every year but several times i would go and race against a buddy with whom i was pretty evenly matched and and every every time every race he would just take out the first kilometer or two at a a little bit quicker than normal and i would you know because of my pride i would try and stick with him and every year i ran like an absolute sack of crap because he would have he, he lived in calgary so he was ready for it and he could handle a thousand meters exactly. and for me i would just be absolutely smoked after 2k and then i'd have 8k of wounded pride you know agony to suffer through because <laughs> i wasn't used to even that level so when i think of like oh 1800 meters that's a whole different kettle of fish and yeah it's not just like it's going to feel a little harder. It's you can't recover as easily. I mean, this is all just like uh, I'm not talking science here. I'm talking the the sort of uh, perceptual what people feel racing at altitude, and certainly what I felt is you know you dip into the hole a little bit, you can't get it back. You're you're screwed.
1: Exactly totally and then with cross country skiing right it's it's all about it's it's different than marathon running where the the goal is just like velocity at anaerobic threshold like as close as you can i mean think of paula radcliffe uh, her old world record that has been broken now but but it was just insane that she was able to keep that pace under threshold to be able to do it for the two fifteen. like it's it's crazy. But in cross country skiing, you have the terrain to deal with as well. And these hills are big and the downhills have corners and your legs are shattered and the snow conditions are variable. And you know, people are like, you hear this all the time. It's like, no, no, you know, like I, I'm in such good shape out of the tuck, I come back and like I'm back, like I cleared the lactate out of my body. And it's like physiologically wow. speaking, it is impossible to climb a three minute climb like pinned then tuck for 20 seconds, go through an S-turn for another 15 seconds, and then be totally cleared of lactate. Like, that just doesn't happen. You're just in good shape, and you're prepared in other ways as well. I mean, your oxygen extraction, there's lots of stuff going on to to be able to do that. But when you put the factors of cross-country skiing with a very undulating terrain, the corners, the snow conditions, and everything – without having any experience with altitude whatsoever and showing up a week before the event or even 10 days before, which is kind of like, okay, you can be acclimatized for 1800 meters. If you, if you show up 10 days out, that's pretty safe. But at the end of the day, your execution. This is the Olympics. This isn't some. This isn't some uh, fun, fun Wednesday night race at the at your ski club. Like this is for the big show. And with this Corona pandemic <laughs> that we're living through, and these big teams like Sweden or, or Norway or or other teams that just aren't able to do their preparation like they like they know they or like they they have experience with with these younger athletes, it's going to be fascinating to see. I mean, I would feel so unsure going to my first Olympics, even if I've won 10 World Cups, um, but I'd never been to the Olympics before, and now it's in Beijing, it's in China, I've never competed in Asia, and now it's at uh, 1800 meters, and I have no experience with that. And I'm on a team like Norway that has the world-leading altitude protocol that is tried and true, and has yielded results for, for decades, and they can't fulfill it whatsoever. It's fascinating.
0: I just have a quick question here. So, what if you are one of these athletes where you haven't necessarily been, uh, you know, again, I'm trying to be careful of labeling an athlete as a concrete non responder, but altitude camps have been rough for you in the past. And perhaps you haven't achieved the benefit you thought you might coming out of an altitude camp in terms of a boost in performance. Um, You know, with a high stakes, competition like the Olympics at hand and with sort of contextually thinking like, yeah, these races are not at a thousand meters. They're at 1,800 meters. And so it might behoove you to like experiment more with altitude camps. What would you say um, to coaches and physiologists or handlers that might be around the athlete at an altitude camp to ensure that like you are doing your hundred percent best at, Trying to make this beneficial, and at what point, or at what what sort of data would you collect and say, "Yeah, we're done. We're pulling the plug on this because this person's not going to come out of this in in a better way."
2: Yeah, that's a that's a super tough question. I mean i <laughs> I don't want to pretend I have more knowledge or, or or more practical experience than I do because my what my impression is after sort of and I have discussions with people after every time I write about the altitude training which is not infrequently I have discussions with people like uh, you know Trent Stellingworth is a name that may be familiar to some some guys I think he works mostly more with uh, su- summer summer teams but he's a physiologist in Canada who's also a coach his wife was an Olympic uh, two time Olympic runner so he, he's, a re- uh, he's someone I really respect in terms of marrying the the science, the, the well, marrying a good runner, but also marrying the science uh, with the practice, like what does the data say, but also what seems to work with athletes. And he and, and others like him are are really sort of play play up the, the the idea that there's an art to altitude training. That yes, science is important. He just as much as I do. He he respects the evidence, but you need to sort of figure out what works in general for athletes and then what works for a given athlete. So I think Certainly, in terms of monitoring, you, you, you want to monitor stuff like iron levels, uh, you know, you want to screen for stuff like iron levels, like Devin was mentioning before. I think you also want to have good training data that incorporates perceptual measures like like how you feel, whether it's a you know rating of perceived exertion or something for each session, because you want to look for if there's a big discrepancy between how you feel in your in your workouts and how you would normally expect to be feeling so it doesn't matter what your pace is if you are saying you know yeah all my sessions are six out of ten whereas normally i would be doing these easy sessions at four or five out of ten you can't you can't keep borrowing from that that account if it feels hard that's a bad sign so i think that's that's something to watch and and i think nutrition uh, calories. So like, I, and again, this is, this is complicated, right? Because you got to re- be really careful about telling athletes to monitor their weight. Uh, that, cause that can, that can go south very, very quickly, but you want to have some way of making sure people, cause ca- you know, altitude can affect appetite too. So you want to be making sure that the, the athletes are getting in enough food. And usually for, in most cases, that's a question of making sure they're eating enough food, make like pushing them to take in more calories, more protein, um, and all of these things are kind of like things you need to be watching for with high-level athletes, no matter what. It's just that the the effects get magnified at altitude, and if you make a mistake, it's
0: harder to come back from it. Several of my friends that have written books, it crushed them, and they were done. Uh, a, a new book on the horizon for you. <laughs> I, you know, it, it, the 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 ride with Endure has been a lot of fun.
2: Like it's, I've I've sort of connected with a lot of people that, you know, and this, this conversation is a classic example that's just like, I'm so glad I write, wrote the book because it, it took me to places like this to, to have fun conversations. Um, so, I would like to write another book, um, and I'm waiting for the book to write itself, but it's just it just hasn't happened. So, <laughs> um, the, the truth is I haven't really figured out what I want to write about next because I, I, you know, I, I tried to put everything I knew about the science of endurance in endure and so I, I'm not feeling super motivated to be like endure too here's some other things I forgot to, <laughs> to mention so I'm, I'm trying to find a topic that, that like endure is something that comes from my life and that, that is just like interesting to me inherently not just that like hey I bet I could sell some books like this and, uh, and that's, that's taking it's time but there will be another book it just uh, you know it may, it may take a few more years
0: and lastly it sounds like your kids are going to get on snow this winter is that in your plan as well that, that is, it's, well, you know, it, it, and it's interesting because, so my wife ra- raced
2: cross-country skiing in, in high school, so she knows more about this stuff than I did, like, I, I didn't, sh- she's the one who introduced me to skate skiing when I was already an adult, so I, I, don't, I had only done classic, um, but we're figuring, you know, pandemics being what they are, uh, this is going to be a good winter to be outside, and my kids are four and six, so they're, you know, we tried cross-country skiing last year just very briefly, and my, the o- my older daughter was able to stay balanced, the younger one was still kind of, at, at three, was not super motivated, um, but we figured, you know, this this year it was, this was the summer it was impossible to get bikes or to get bikes serviced. And we thought, oh man, we don't want to end up in November or December being like, what do you mean you're all sold out of skis? So, so we, we impulse bought some, uh, some, uh, fairly low end, uh, Cross-country skis, some some really basic ones for my younger daughter, but some some proper ones. I, I was talking to you, Jason, about the, the ones that were on sale are SNS Junior, and I was like, oh no, did we just lock into the wrong set of bindings for the rest of her life? But uh, but yeah, we're excited about that, and we're hoping for for big snow since you know this this winter is going to be probably one where we spend a lot of time just with the family outside for sure.
0: Well, great, uh, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Love your work thanks so much alex it was
1: super super interesting chatting with you and man i feel like i could chat with you forever all these questions with my with my experience uh from my career and stuff because it is just yeah fascinating subject. so thanks a lot for making the time
2: totally i really appreciate it it's it's fun for me too and it's always a a real treat to hear from people who've actually experienced it because uh, you know as i was saying with you know with regard to trend strongworth it's like there's science, and then there's living it, and and you you need you need to pay attention to both, and, and the knowledge you get from both both spheres.
0: Okay, well have a have a great day. Appreciate it. And uh, all right, all right. Take Bye. care, guys. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you have questions, you can send them to Jason at fasterskeeter.com or Devin at fasterskeeter.com. And hope everyone is doing okay out there.